Thanks. Good morning. Um, take out your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, our Frontlines team will come up and give you a Bible. Um, our scripture reading this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 1, and it's verses 3 to 12. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that Bible with you. We'd love to give that to you. All right. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to, to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, though those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be gathered together today, and as we are going through that passage, you are probably like, where are we going to start? There is a lot there. Uh, we here at Church of the City in our gathering love to focus on God's Word. We want to go through it. We want to help each of us understand more of what's happening and what's going on. And then also, my hope in teaching God's Word is that you would go home and study it yourself and have some of the necessary tools to actually be able to do that. Before we jump into this passage, I want to just take a moment to quiet, to be quiet, invite you to be quiet yourself, sort of check in how you're feeling. This is maybe the first time that you've maybe been allowed to stop this morning. So check in with how you're feeling before we, ch we continue on this morning uh, into this morning's message. So Jesus, you know each and every single one of us. We've sung this morning about your incredible love. We've sung about your compassion. We've sung about the glorious name of Jesus. You're holy. You're the anointed one. And now we are going to look into the scriptures, into a section of the scriptures, a letter written that does not avoid difficulty and suffering and trials. 
And so I pray as you are the surgeon that you would do the work that you need to do today in our hearts so that we might see you more clearly and worship you more fully. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, as I look around the room, uh, all of us are human beings, which is good. You're like, wow, that's no surprise there. All of us, as I look around this room, are human beings. And there are a number of things about each and every single one of us that are similarities, and then there's going to be a number of things that are different. But each of us in our life will experience something that is universal. And the thing that we will all experience that is universal is suffering. And so suffering is universal. Now, while the gravity or the extent or the intensity of that suffering may vary from person to person, from home to home, uh, from nation to nation, if we're thinking about this on a global scale, suffering to some extent is universal. And in the Christian worldview, suffering, uh, we believe, came in. The origin of it is, is after the fall. It's when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Sin enters the world and as does suffering. Now, the scriptures don't leave us with, okay, Okay, well, now you have suffering and, you know, sucks to be you. We believe in a God who continues to pursue his people and a God who comes to this earth to save us, to set us free and give us hope for a day when there will no longer be any suffering. Now that is good news to those of us in this room today who are in the midst of a suffering in the midst of some sort of difficult or challenging situation, whether it be a trial, whether it be suffering, you hear the good news and it's clear in your mind that there will be a day where there no longer will be suffering and you go, praise God, because I can't take it anymore. And guaranteed, everybody in this room and those that are not in this room, in our city and in our nation and on the globe, all feels the weight and intensity of suffering in different ways, but every single human being will experience some form of suffering. And as we began to talk about last week, as we approach First Peter, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the first disciples of Jesus, he's a witness to Jesus, he was one of the first called disciples as we talked about, he's writing a letter that is intended to be circulated amongst a group of churches as identified in the second verse of First Peter amongst the dispersion. And these are a group of primarily Gentile Christians, people with a pagan background, they weren't born Jewish, with a Gentile background who have heard the good news of Jesus, who have trusted in it for their own salvation. And so they are now receiving a letter and the culture in which they're living, they're starting to feel the ostracization and the persecution of their cities, of their culture against them as Christians. And the persecution will only get more significant as the years go on. And Peter is writing this letter from Rome and he understands that Emperor Nero is going to begin to really intensify the persecution. And so he's writing this letter to these believers to prepare them for the intense suffering and persecution that they're going to come under. And it's really important that we understand this, that these are not just letters to us on a page for us primarily. These were originally letters to groups of Christians that were experiencing persecution and would go on to die for their faith in Jesus. This is a significant, significant text and it helps us understand and identify how do we make light of or how do we experience suffering? How do we make sense of it? 
And so I hope this morning we can do that as we begin to go more deeply into the letter that is 1 Peter. Now, as we approach this this morning, I want you to be thinking, uh, maybe it's going to be easy for you to think about this in your life right now, but a situation in your life right now that is, is, seems like a trial. It, it's, the intensity of the suffering is, is current. It's like you don't have to really reach for it. It's like this is what's going on in my life right now. You know, for some of us, that's going to be the death of a loved one. For others, it might be a very challenging circumstance or situation we find ourselves in at work. For some of us, it's, you know, I've been trying to share my faith with people, and now they're making fun of me for it. Like all of us, at some level, obviously there's some different extremes, but all of us are experiencing something. So I want you to pull into your mind right now, think of something that for you would feel like a a constant trial or experience of suffering in your life right now as we progress through this text this morning. I also just am mindful of the fact that, as we'll see here this morning, that the words that Peter writes in some ways are going to feel a tad harsh. And what I mean by that is when you are sitting with someone who's in the midst of suffering, there are certain things you, you know that you probably just shouldn't say. You sit and you, by and large, listen. And you wait for an opportunity that maybe this person gives you to say, could you speak into this a little bit for me? And Peter is aware of that, but he's also here writing a letter that he understands will come at a certain point. And so you need to hear me in that as we explore this text together this morning, God is compassionate and gracious, and he knows the suffering that you're going through. All right? You ready to jump in? Some of you are like, whoa, this is like getting intense. Yes. Yes. So let's jump in together this morning. So after the greeting and the introduction, you can hear that message on our podcast from last week. He jumps in, verse 3, and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation mark, if you have your versions there. He's starting with a note of praise, of thanksgiving, of sing to God. Blessed be God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God! And some of us are like, okay, why praise God? He hasn't gotten there yet. He's just saying, hey, let's stop for a minute and realize we can praise God. Let's praise him. You know, you came in here this morning, we're singing songs, people are raising their hands, we're singing together. You know, where do we sing together in our culture? Like games, like we go to, very rarely, it's birthday parties, and then people are a little bit awkward about it, or we go to hockey games or any other sort of game, we sing the national anthem, right? We don't often sing. We here love the fact that we can gather together, we can sing to God, praise God, blessed be the Father, Father God, blessed be Jesus Christ, let's sing, let's praise him. Peter starts, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the subject of his praise comes into focus and he says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. According to God's great mercy. The motivation for God in causing us to be born again is his incredible mercy, his compassion, his love. So why do we bless God? Why do we praise God? Because of his mercy. 
and he's caused us to be born again. Now, where does this language of born again comes from? Some of us have knowledge of the scriptures and the life of Jesus, and Jesus had an interaction with a person by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, a religious leader, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And in John 3, verses, verse 3, and then we'll jump ahead to 5b to 8, he says, truly, truly, this is Jesus saying to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then jump to 5b to 8. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there's a few details here we don't have a ton of time to go into. But according to Jesus, you and I need to be completely transformed. Our hearts literally need to be remade. And according to Jesus and Peter that we see in this passage, God through the Spirit causes this new birth. You know, as much as we want to figure out the best arguments for trusting that there is a God and that the best understanding that we have of God is in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the Christian worldview, there's something that needs to happen along that journey, along with all the arguments that some people need in the Spirit of God, opening somebody's eyes and showing them who exactly Jesus is. You know, you can't just do that on your own. That provides actually, I think, like a great hope. That as I'm living amongst my neighbors, as I'm wanting to share the gospel, it's not on me. I can share the good news, but then the Holy Spirit has to grip that person's heart and change them. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you need to be born again. There's a, there's a work here that the Holy Spirit needs to do in and through your life. And Peter is pointing to that exact thing. He's saying, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has changed your heart. Praise God. Now he's now going to go on and he's going to tell us the results of being born again. He says this. So what are we born again to? Well, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's take each in turn. Three results of this born again or this new life. He says, we now have a living hope. Now notice the language, a living hope. It's not dead. It's a living hope. It's an, it's an active hope. It's present in your life. It's, it's vital. It's genuine. It's a, opposition is to be empty and dead. And what we read here is it comes through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So for believers, those who are followers of Jesus, our living hope is Jesus' resurrection. And therefore, what that means, as we talked about on Resurrection Sunday, is that we have hope that we will one day come back to life. Right? This is when Jesus says, right, the very famous text, if you continue with Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You will live forever. You know, the whole cultural YOLO, right? You only live once. You know, go and do it. Go and live. Christians believe, as believers, we also only live once. But our life is into eternity with Jesus Christ. 
people who are not followers of Jesus, you only live once for the time that you're here on this earth. For followers of Jesus, we live eternally with God. So we have a living hope because we understand that life after this life here on this earth, like it is now, is only a small portion of everlasting life. And so Peter is saying, lift your eyes up. Because you've been born again, you have a living hope. You have a resurrection life through what Jesus has done for you. Edmund Clowney, in his commentary, writes this, Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. You know, an early marker of the Christian community was, in fact, their hope. Uh, in a letter uh, it's in the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. What is Paul saying to the believers in Thessalonica? He's saying, we who are Christians, when we lose somebody who is a follower of Jesus, we grieve differently because we have hope that we will one day see them again. We're unlike those who have no hope for that. And so while we still suffer, as we still grieve, we know that we will one day see them again, and so it changes how we live in the present. So we're first, through being born again, we have a living hope. Secondly, he says an inheritance. Verse 4, he says we have an inheritance. And then he lists three characteristics of this inheritance. He says it's imperishable. In other words, it cannot perish or be corrupted. Secondly, it's undefiled. It, it cannot spoil. It will not lose its muster or its beauty. Thirdly, it's unfading. It will last forever. You know, some of us, uh, maybe more than others, um, think about our inheritances uh, more, than, more than maybe others. Maybe for some of us, you know, obviously the reality of someone passing away oftentimes leads to some form of an inheritance. This one is completely different, though. This one is eternal forever. It will not spoil. You know, Jesus, when he was here on this earth, he also taught about the reality of our physical possessions, that someone could steal them. They will spoil. Here, Peter is pointing out to these believers. He's saying, your inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You have hope eternal and then as he finishes, he says, it's kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is kept for us, and we are kept for it until Jesus returns. So what is Peter doing? Well, he's reminding those who are suffering that a great reward is laid up for those who are faithful in the midst of their suffering. That so many of us put our hope in what is happening in this life. And he's saying, no, lift your eyes up. Focus on what you also have in the next. Not just what you have in this. That you have a living hope, you have an inheritance. And then thirdly, salvation. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now two ideas here worth noting. One, it's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The type of salvation Peter is speaking to here is in reference to the salvation from God's wrath on the last day or future judgment. You know, when we focused on our justice series, we talked about the fact that there's two sides of justice, right? There's the side of giving people their due, 
sort of the, we want to help people as they're struggling for needs of justice, but then there's also the hard side of justice, which is wrongdoers need to be punished. And believers trust and believe that there is coming a day when God will, Jesus will return and he will judge the earth. And those who are not under the life of Jesus, what he has done for us, will sit under God's wrath and judgment. And here, what Peter is pointing out is to say, if you've been born again, you're going to come under the salvation that Jesus Christ has given you. This is good news. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, and to salvation that will be revealed to you in the last time. So one, it's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But then it says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So as I was reading this, I was sort of a little bit confused at this point if I'm reading the English. And I was asking the question, who is the who that are being guarded by God's power through faith? And who is the who? The who is the who are followers of Jesus or believers. So not only... Do we receive salvation? It'll be on the last day. Not only do we receive our inheritance, God by his power will also walk with us as we suffer. He is guarding us. He is helping us. He is encouraging us by his spirit. He's encouraging our faith. This is what Tom Schreiner writes. God's power protects us because his power is the means by which our faith is actually sustained. So if you're sitting there in the midst of suffering and you're going, I can't do it, good. Because your faith must be sustained by God and his Holy Spirit. Every single human being, we pray, will come to the point of throwing up their arms and saying, I surrender. I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, some of us feel that daily. Others of us, it's like once a month. You know, in my journey of counseling, I needed to come to the point where it's like, I have an omnipotence complex where I think I'm like the bee's knees and I don't need God. And all of us need to come to these points of throwing up our arms and saying, I'm not all powerful. I don't have it all together. And therefore, I need God and I need his Holy Spirit to get me through this. So not only does he give us salvation, he also gives us the strength in order to go through the hard trials that we will go through. So what's the point in these first three verses? Followers of Jesus praise God and have hope in the midst of suffering because of their certainty of salvation. Because of their certainty of salvation. We trust that this this life now is not all there is. This life is not all there is. This is like a little blip. You know, to illustrate this, I oftentimes think about my great-great-grandfather. How many of you in this room know the name and the legacy of your great-great-grandfather? Feel free to raise your hand. Some, some of us in this room might. But look around. Not many of us do. <laughs> That's humbling, right? Because when you think about it, what about your life? Will your great-great-great-great-grandkids be thinking about you? Now, that's not to say that there weren't some nice things that happened in your life. That, you know, the, her- the, the heritage of your family, like we're not, we're not throwing that out. But what I'm simply expressing to us all through this illustration is that it's so small in comparison to the wider picture. 
He continues. The next section are verses of verses six to nine. In this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, there's a lot here, but in summary, I'm going to give you four things, four reasons why followers of Jesus praise God and have hope in the midst of their suffering. And the first we already began to touch on, but the first one is this. Our hope in Jesus points us beyond our trials. Our certainty of salvation. He writes, in this you rejoice, though now if necessary you've been grieved by various trials. This verse summarizes the point of verses 3 to 5 and accentuates the point that while our troubles and suffering may last for a little while, our hope in Christ ultimately lasts forever. Second reason for hope, this is a tough one, is that our our faith is strengthened and it is refined through suffering. Notice what he writes, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found. Now what this verse answers for us, at least in part, is one of the reasons for why God allows suffering. Why does he allow suffering? Because in suffering, God does something with our faith and with our character that he would not be able to do otherwise. Think about pride, right? We talked about already dependence on God. We think about trust. We think about an omnipotent posture. And what suffering does is it truly chests the genuineness of someone's faith and its persistence. You know, if you were to think about maybe the times in your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, where your, where your faith grew the most, it was potentially through a time of significant trial or suffering. Rather than when things were really, really easy. You know, you've maybe been witness to people who have come to know Jesus, or at least it seemed that they did, and then suddenly something really difficult happens, and they, you know, forgive my phrasing, but sort of bugger off. They, you know, they don't get more intense in their relationship with Jesus. It sort of tests their faith in a new way. I was talking to a friend a couple years ago whose, whose daughter was diagnosed with cancer, his young daughter, four years old, something like that. And his initial, you know, as he was going through this season of, you know, treatments and all these different things with his daughter, he talked to me about the, the way that he's grown in his relationship with Jesus that he never would have been able to if it wasn't for the suffering that he was experiencing. Now this is difficult. I'm not saying this is not difficult, but there is something that God can do in the life of a believer in the midst of suffering that he may not be able to do, and we need to trust him that he would not be able to do under any other circumstance. Now, this obviously raises the question of, well, one, why does God allow suffering, and what is God's role in suffering? And I think that that is a huge topic. But this illustration has been helpful to me, and I hope it brings a bit of hope. 
you think about a car crash, right? You think about a, a car crash happening and you think about the fact that an ambulance is going to need to show up and the ambulance is going to be needed to take this human being to the hospital. And at the hospital, you know, it's discovered the surgeon comes into the room sort of after the accident has obviously happened, comes into the room and, and they need to start figuring out, okay, how are we going to repair what has happened here, right? That's their job. They're a surgeon, you know, and they, they go about their business, right? But that surgeon's hands have been tied because they weren't at the accident. They didn't see it happen. They, they weren't in a role or an opportunity that they could have stopped it. And so therefore, they're limited in their knowledge and in their capacity to actually be able to know, how am I going to properly treat this? They're doing a bit of background work to try to catch up with what has happened. So if you think of the analogy and the illustration, that you could think of that. Well, that's what God's hands are tied. He can't stop the suffering. And so he's also, you know, he's limited in his capacity. Or we trust that God is all-powerful. We trust that God is all-knowing. We trust that God at any point could do what God wants and what he wills. Ultimately, why? For his glory and for our good. And so God is actually there at the accident. The painful reality is he allows it but then he's with the person as they're suffering. He's in the ambulance transported to the hospital as they're suffering. And therefore, he knows exactly where to start in the repair and the mending process of restoration. And so there's something that God does in our faith when we experience suffering that he would otherwise not be able to do in another way. And even in this moment right now, you're thinking, well, that's difficult. Yes. Yes. According to his great mercy, however. So our faith is strengthened and refined through suffering. But then thirdly, our suffering and faith actually bring honor to Jesus then and now. Then the genuineness of your faith, he writes, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So not only is our faith strengthened, tested, and refined at suffering, it also brings honor and glory to Jesus. So it's not wasted. It's not useless. When we go through suffering, it actually brings honor and glory to Jesus. And then also it brings honor and glory to Jesus now. Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. These believers, unlike Peter, have not seen Jesus in the flesh. Yet they love him and they believe in him because they believe that he will return. And they believe what Peter has attested to them. They are filled with love for Jesus, which is a testimony to their love for Christ and the honor that it will bring him. This speaks to the reality of when someone is in the midst of their suffering and their faith is strengthened and they continue to praise Jesus. They praise Jesus with a hope. And if you're a human being, you respond to that in the natural human way that anyone would and go, you're nuts! How can you have hope right now? Everything's hopeless! The person says, well, I have hope in Jesus. I know that I don't have to grieve in the same way that the rest of the world does. As hard as it is, I'm still grieving, but I can grieve differently 
because I know that I will see this person again. You know, I think about this, the reality and results of this in the context of Jesus says, go and make disciples, right? Matthew, Matthew, he says to this to us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus' great commission is to go and make disciples. One of the ways we can make disciples and the world will see our faith is how we suffer. Right? Think about that. Maybe you're going through a suffering that is similar to the people on your street, but the way that you go through it is different than the way they go through it. And they say, there's something about this person. There's a hope in them that is not the same as it is in me. And then the fourth reason for why followers of Jesus praise God in the midst of suffering is that when Jesus returns, we will receive our reward of blessing. Notice what he writes, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If our faith has persisted through suffering, followers of Jesus will receive their salvation. And the two rewards are Jesus himself and, of course, our salvation. What's the point of these verses? The point is this, that suffering serves a temporary purpose. Hear me there. Suffering serves a temporary purpose of maturing our joy and love for Jesus as we patiently await his return and our full salvation. A temporary purpose of maturing our joy and love for Jesus. What this means as well is that suffering does not have the final word. Jesus does. And therefore, it doesn't need to destroy us. You know, the, the, the cultural view of, of suffering in the West is any form of trial or suffering, get out of it. Deal with it. Numb yourself. Leave. Leave. The Christian view against that is no. God might be using this suffering and he will use it for his glory and for my good. And that might be the strengthening of my faith. Peter continues, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. Now, some of us are like, what's this about angels? What is happening here? And so, Missy, I'm going to skip a bunch of this or else we're never going to finish. What Peter is pointing out for us, and jump to the point, Missy, is that we can praise God for the great privilege and joy of living post-Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, unlike the prophets, and distinct from the experience of the angels. What Peter is pointing out is he's saying, look back to the prophets that through the Holy Spirit were revealed that A Messiah would come, a Messiah would suffer, and a Messiah would die, a Messiah would come back to life, giving us all life. But they never got to see the Messiah. They longed for it. They searched. They inquired carefully, the text reads for us. They longed to see Jesus. They longed to see this Messiah, yet they never were able to. And then he's saying, oh, and the thing about angels is that angels don't experience redemption like human beings experience redemption. They don't get to experience the gospel the same way that human beings do. 
Human beings get to identify and say, Jesus, you've saved me. Angels don't have that experience. So our faith, we live at a time post Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We're awaiting his return. And we ought to be praising God for the fact that we don't live in the Old Testament. And we're awaiting the day when Jesus will return. But we also have a unique experience from that of the angels. And the angels look at the experience that we get to have and are like, whoa, lucky. You get to know and experience the redemption of God in a way that we don't get to. And as a people living post the prophets, you've seen the fulfillment. Now you and I have not physically seen Jesus, the one that lived, right? Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter. But like these early followers of Jesus, who are, who's Peter attests to, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him and you believe in him. That's our experience. And we are blessed and fortunate that we have that experience is what he's saying. So in the midst of our suffering, we have an experience of Jesus, of the fulfillment, and therefore that experience leads to an adv advantage over the prophets and also an advantage over the angels. You know, it's far different for somebody to endure something if they don't know of or experience the hope, right? And us as followers of Jesus now are looking forward to the day when Jesus will return, right? We, we look forward to that day. I hope we do. If you don't, like, there are days where I just throw up my hands and I'm saying, Jesus, come back. You know, like, if you watch the news, I'd encourage you to watch the news, to be praying for our world, you know, focus on international news, not just North American, Canada news. Focus on international news. See what's going on in the wider world. And if it doesn't make you go, wow, there is something seriously wrong. There needs to be a hope. There needs to be a plan. Trust the fact that God is over all of this and that God promises, Jesus promises that he will one day return. And that is our source of hope in the midst of our suffering, that this world is not all there is, that Jesus will come back. And if he is doing things right now that are suffering like, or if we're experiencing suffering, he may be using it and likely is using it. This is where I need to come to, that he is using it for his glory and for your good. But what we also experience with Jesus and with God our Father, is that God suffered for us so that we don't have to suffer forever. God suffered for us so we don't have to suffer forever. The prophet Isaiah wrote, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit about the coming suffering servant, Isaiah 53, 3-6, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Followers of Jesus can look to Jesus who suffered for our salvation. Tim Keller, in reflecting on the uniqueness of this perspective amongst other worldviews, writes, 
Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. On the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours, that exceeds ours, sorry, I lost my spot here, as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and God forsaken. And we ask the question, well, why did he do it? The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. So God suffered for us so that we don't have to suffer forever. And that's the good news. going to take a moment here. I realize this has been a lot. So why don't we sit for a moment. Sam, why don't you come up and get on the keys. The rest of the band can come up too. I just want you to close your eyes. At the beginning of the message, I challenged us all to think about a current trial, to think about what we would maybe identify as a current suffering. I want you to be thinking about that right now. As you've listened to the text today, as I hope you go home and maybe reread it, identifying now more clearly what Peter is writing, I want to invite you to surrender that suffering to God. I want to invite you to trust that God is in the midst of this suffering and that he's doing something unique in and through it to challenge your faith, to increase your faith, to test your faith. That he doesn't want you to just escape it. If he wanted you to escape it, you wouldn't currently still be alive that he may in fact and is using it for incredible good and to make that decision to believe that is an extreme level of trust it is to say God I believe what you're doing more than what I think ought to be done here And in the midst of my suffering, I pray that by your power that you would increase my faith. Because that's also what we saw in the text is that God increases our faith. He sustains our faith in the midst of the suffering. So he just doesn't leave us to it. He sustains us. He helps us. He encourages us. He gives us the power to overcome it. So I'd invite you as we respond to surrender this all to Jesus. Trusting in a God who is not 
not understanding of our suffering, but came and suffered so that the suffering that you are currently experiencing does not need to be an eternal suffering, but is simply a present suffering that has an end date. If you would like someone to pray with you as we respond, I invite you to come to the front as there'll be a team of people that would love to be praying with you. So Jesus, we thank you for your experience of suffering that leads to our freedom. And God, I recognize that there is a lot in these verses today. There's a lot of hard truths that we want to avoid in our culture. But we want to choose to trust you today. To depend on you, to lean into you. I thank you for the testimony of brothers and sisters, other followers of Jesus all across the world right now that are in the midst of intense suffering and persecution for their faith. May you strengthen them as you promise that you will. And may their eyes be focused on you. As your word says, you're the author and you're the perfecter of our faith. In your son's name we pray. Amen.